Welcome to God Books, the podcast where we talk to bookshop owners all around the world. On this episode, we open on Christmas Day, we open on the first day of the year. For me, it's really important to be a presence and for the people to know that we're here. They can show up just for a cup of hot chocolate and to talk about a book. There is a pair of lemon trees outside the desperate literature multilingual bookshop in Madrid. And you could say that if God gave them lemons, owners Terry and Charlotte made a damn good lemonade with this literary haven. In their own words, desperate literature sells books, real books, desperate ones, paper and glue. But actually, desperate literature is also a community, event space, a publishing house and a home. Self-diagnosed book fanatics Terry Craven and Charlotte Delatre live above and in the vicinity of the bookshop. They both worked at the world-famous Paris bookshop Shakespeare & Company for a few years before opening Desperate Literature, inviting Madrileños, travelers, and unidentified walk-ins to write a poem on their vintage typewriter, or maybe take a shot of whiskey with a book purchase. Today we chat with Terry and Charlotte to find out all about the joys and despairs of their lives as booksellers. Terry and Charlotte, a big warm welcome to our podcast. Uh, where are you joining us from today? Can you let our listeners know what you see around you? Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for having us. And um, where we are in Madrid, Spain, we are in the bookshop, Desperate Literature. We are in the fiction room. And what I see is the sci-fi section, the crime section, the French section, poetry, beautiful shelves made of delicate wood we gathered in the street when we arrived. A fan because here it becomes really hot during the summer. And some beautiful things like a um, Rinko Kawachi photo book that we love and cookbooks and our beautiful display. Cat lamp that, are, that we just added very We've got recently. A very good. I wish I could show it to you. It's a very tacky lamp. That it's we terrible, love. but amazing. It's the circle of bad to good. It's gone all the <laughs> way back around uh, to good. And this is an inheritance from our previous bookstore. It's like a stained glass cat. With a 360 degrees head. So it's if like, you want to scare people out, you can just turn the head of the cat and yeah, it's really interesting. It's very good. Yeah. That's amazing. It sounds like it's a do-it-yourself uh, combined with finders keepers and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Someone, I don't know, a couple of years ago was asking about, oh, you know, what do you need if you want to open a bookstore? You know, what are the skills you need? And I said, well, unless you've got a lot of money, uh, you need to be pretty good at DIY. <laughs> yes. um, because, yeah, we built everything ourselves except a few little pieces. We, we just renovated the front room. That was, I mean, I, would, I don't want to do that again. That was a huge task, yeah. Everything, basically, when we arrived, we, we, when I think about it, I'm not sure I will be able to do it. I don't, I'm not sure I don't want to do it again, but I'm not sure if I would have the stamina to do it all over again. Because now I know how much work it represents to renovate everything and to add shelves and to schlep some wood around and find... Uh, Find everything, basically, because when we arrived, there was no till. It was empty, yeah. It, it was, was empty, like yeah. There was a bit of plastic in the kids' section. There was not a kids' section. A lot of cockroaches and, uh, yeah, tiny details like this that we liked. We were living in the shop at the time, so in the back that is now an office. And, yeah, there was a green bathtub. And, uh, yeah, I remember small details like this. The thing about DIY is that we get uh, a lot of help from friends that we met through the bookshop. And that you've managed to bring in to become a part of your community. That's so great. 
Um, I think it's really cool that you've done so much of the work yourself. What was actually there before? Was it a bookshop before you took over? Yeah, it was. A, it's been a bookshop for quite a long time, actually. Um, with like the fourth or fifth owners to have a bookshop. I think we changed the the style quite a lot. Previously, it was kind of a messy. Um, it was a secondhand bookstore. Basically, what came in with a bit of everything. And um, it went through different phases. I think it went through better and worse phases in terms of its organization and dedication to building a community of readers. Um, but I have to say, I think a lot of our experience of how we make a community comes from time working at Shakespeare and Company and like how to sell books and how to mix. We, we knew we wanted to do what they do and what we did there, which is mix secondhand and new books. And it's important because you know you can't simply can't get the really amazing books that you want to sell, and also the new experimental literature. There's no way you can get hold of that secondhand. So it's a really good way of having a mix, and then rare books as well. Because I've worked in rare books, um, I worked in rare books in Paris for a bit, and um, but also in different languages. You know, we knew that that was really important to us to mix the languages we speak, so English, French, and Spanish. We came from France, and you know, we came here on a whim. You know, I had always wanted to open a bookstore, and I was working at Shakespeare and Company, and we didn't. I didn't really know how to go about it. So Charlotte suggested that uh, I call, who is now one of my business partners, Craig Walzer, who I knew through Shakespeare and Company. He, he owns Death Atlantis Books in, in Santorini. And I said, oh, you know, let's open a bookstore. I've got a bit of money. And so I, I just opened one in Madrid. Why don't you go check it out? Uh, All right, let's go check it out. And, you know, until that second in the phone call, I'd never, ever thought about being in Spain, didn't speak any Spanish. So we just sort of came in... August 2014, right? Or November? No, April 2015. Yeah, but when we first came to check it out. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. We came in like November just to check it out, hang out for a week. Mm-hmm. And on the back of that week, or five days or whatever, we were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to go live there. <laughs> and um, and then we moved in April 2015 and just sort of th- jumped in. So, yeah, definitely the first six months were just brutal. <laughs> brutal Spanish lessons, you know. <laughs> but the idea was to stay six months and see... See how we can help Craig and Corey who opened the shop first. And then we realized this is really something we want to invest our time in and Mm -hmm. that had so much potential and we were happy here and it made so much sense to create the bookshop and build something of our own. And then we asked to to stay and they said yes. So, yeah, but the first six months were completely a a try-in and to help friends and to take a break from Paris, I guess. Yeah, six years ago. It was 2015, yeah. Mm -hmm. And how did you find Madrid? How did Madrid receive you as booksellers, especially compared to Paris? You, know, you came from such a known bookstore. How was that transition for you? It's, it's a strange one. Obviously, there's cultural differences. I mean, it's a very different experience for me because I went to France really in love with... I'd studied French literature. I already spoke the language when I arrived. Whereas here, it really happened from like one month to the next. And it, it was a bit more of a... You know, you arrive in a country and... Uh, one of them is an experience of living in Shakespeare and Company, meeting loads of people, it being really romantic, learning the language bit by bit, you know, drinking wine in Paris, learning French. Here you arrive and then your lessons are go to the bank, go to the lawyer. <laughs> you know. So it's a very different experience. Um, so it happens more slowly, I think, the, the kind of uh, integration. But in terms of like the bookstore, for me at least, one of the things I, I kind of... I'm really grateful for is that I knew after working at, I think both of us, maybe working at Shakespeare and company, you know, whenever you work somewhere, you learn a lot there and you learn what you want to do, what you don't want to do. And I just knew, I, I knew what a bookstore could be. You know, you've seen this 
books that Shakespeare and Company go from a place which was very similar to desperate literature at the time. You know, when I first arrived there, like quite small in a sense, you know, um, to grow to this be this huge thing and um, with amazing events, a festival, you know, putting plays on in the park, you just whatever you want they wanted to do, they they could kind of magic it out and um, and this feeling of being able to say, you know, what, I want to do this and let's let's make it exist, let's believe it into existence, and um, and and I kind of. And maybe somehow foolishly thought that this is true for for us too. Why not? And um, and then I think we did make it happen. Really, you know. Yeah, you did. You did. You have so many things going on. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, we do. Which is pretty exciting. But uh, but when we arrived, I remember that we in two thousand, the first time we visited, it was still in the crisis in yeah, Spain, yeah. and the city was completely yeah. deserted. There was only one you know, coffee place that is now just, it's almost a chain. And uh, the city was completely empty. There was some, um, you know, closed um, shops. And so it was weird to open this little mushroom of books in the middle of the city. And and I think it's it was really the perfect time for us <laughs> to arrive and to to try something new because the city was in a way not desperate, but... This is where the, the name comes from, desperate literature. <laughs> Um, it adapts to a lot of situations. It does. It's yeah. very adaptable. Yeah. The next thing I want to do is have a. I want to have like a, a a beanie hat that says "desperate" on the front and then literature on the back. Um, no, it comes from uh, Roberto Bolaño's Savage Detectives. It's a uh, it's a character uh, Joaquin Font uh, who's saying this uh, quote that we have written on the wall in the entrance of the bookshop. And we even have a section for books for when you're desperate. And uh, the, the quote says, there's books for when you're sad, for when you're bold, for when you're thirsty, and there's, there's books, plenty of them, and there's books for when you're desperate. So and what's a book that works well for when you're desperate? <laughs> I know it adapts every month, huh? Yeah, it depends. It depends yeah. what you want, you know? There's a lot. I mean, we're living such desperate times that this can, there was a period where we had lots of... Um, dystopia books on there but then we need we need hope so we'd put some hopeful books on there and then there was a whole climate crisis period mm. and then uh which is obviously never ending <laughs> and uh yeah now we've got some music stuff on there because charlotte's new wave is like music biographies it's not a new wave no but i mean books that you prom you want to yeah. promote yeah. are like um biographies of amazing musicians and you know we have this, we have, yeah, jolly stuff. We have David Lynch, we have uh, mm -hmm. manifestos of art, we have John Berger, we have lots of things on. It's basically what we love, let's face it. Yeah, yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah, it's just what we want to see and read. Makes sense, makes sense that you decide what, uh, what goes into your bookshop. Um, and actually on that, are there any books that you sort of refuse to stock? Have you ever said no to a book? Have I ever said I would? I would never oh, say... Oh, you do? I just remember now. I... I would never not order a book for some. Well, it depends what it is, I guess, you know. Although almost not. I mean, if someone came and said, I really want this book, would I say no? No, I don't think so. I might say, oh, we've not got it right now, but may I suggest this book instead? <laughs> um, you know, but no, I, I don't think really there are, there are books we just don't stock too much of, you know. Terry is a bit like cold feet with certain writers. Because of this new, not new, but because of what's happening politically, you know, there's some author that, you know, that what they say is like they have been cancelled. Ah. And I'm, uh, it's a tricky question for me because I, I really think we should, I, know, I don't know if I should say that, but you should divide between the private life and the writing life of someone. 
So, for example, I was really shocked when the um, Flannery O'Connor was cancelled. Oh, but Flannery O'Connor's not being cancelled. She was. No, in New I'm, York, she is. Uh, yeah, I mean, this me. is New York. Yeah, so fine. But, yeah, like, but okay. we're not going to stop. Double stop standards. It. What's your stance on that? I actually, I, I don't know if you know High Fidelity. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they have this big debates uh, in the, you know, they're all like music fanatics, like you are, book fanatics. <laughs> and uh, they do debate this, uh, especially in the adapted series from last year, of um, whether to sell a certain musician mm-hmm. if he has been cancelled or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. And where do you draw the line, actually? Again, it's um, how comfortable we feel with defending, uh, yeah, the, presence with of defending the, the presence of the author. Yeah, it's not, I mean, obviously, it's not that we have to agree like something like American Dirt is a good example. You know, this this book was like really slammed. It got such huge, huge, huge press and then got absolutely slammed. But there might actually be a copy behind us somewhere. Uh, but we got a secondhand copy in the other day. In this instance, let people read it. And we might not give it prominence of place. You know, it might not be given space to occupy and mm. on the display shelf, but it will be allowed a sort of place on the shelf. When we arrived, finally, there was the there was two things left apart from the cockroaches in the bedroom. There was Mein Kampf and, <laughs> there was a copy and of an Mein Kampf. image of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> there was, there and was. we kept uh, the copy of Mein Kampf just in case there was some lunatic, I don't know, who was really, uh, not no, lunatic what, what because there's some book? really big scholar who are you know studying Mein Kampf through his <laughs> And totally we did sell it. There was someone who asked, like, do you have Mein Kampf in a very quiet voice? Like, yeah, we do. It's in the back. Just We've had it for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's the same with Woody Allen. That was a difficult one because a lot of people were asking for the autobiography. So and um, it was important to, yeah, you know, to provide this, uh, this, this as well. But we didn't display it. You know, we were a bit uncomfortable with this. That's a really interesting example because I feel like that's a Spanish. Uh, this is the same with all books, whether they're on this topic or not. But there's different like rhythms of the market. You know, like there are lots of books translated into Spanish from English that are even out of print now in English. But you can get them readily in Spanish. There's, um, there's this book, Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, by Engel that was kind of out of print for a while might be coming back into print now and that was huge here with Impedimenta and uh, lots of other books in that same vein and the same thing with the, the Woody Allen you know because it got cancelled originally then taken up by another publishing house in the States and here it was just huge it was huge in every window of every bookstore there was a copy of that book in Spanish and so we got a lot of people usually generational slightly older people would certainly just come out and ask for it and so what are you going to do? You know, um, we ordered it in for people. You know, we had one or two copies for people if they needed to come and pick it up, but we didn't really display it. A friend of mine got me a Woody Allen book, actually, a secondhand edition, because she said, well, we don't like him anymore. But if you buy it secondhand, <laughs> the damage is already out there. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yeah. You know, actually, the Spanish do very nice editions of Woody Allen's books. Yeah, he has a lot of success in Spanish. Very beautiful editions. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, does that answer the question? I don't know. It's a challenging question. Yeah, a bit of a controversial one. Um, maybe we go back to a happier topic. I want to ask you another question on Shakespearean Company, actually, because one of the reasons we started this whole podcast is because we want to know more about the bookseller job, which in your case is more of a career than a job. And I was wondering, when you opened the shop in Madrid, what did you bring from Shakespearean Company? And how did that work in this completely new setup? Well, um, I didn't work as long as Terry, and Terry was a, maybe you know the tumbleweed thing about Archer Expand Company. So he was a tumbleweed before working. So all this is experience with Expand Company, I think he's going to talk about it, of course. But um, 
what I brought is absolutely the, there were so many quotes from George Whitman, you know, all around the bookshop at Shakespeare and Company that, that were guiding lines for how to be in the shop and how to be uh, a bookseller and how to care about the books and how to care about the people. Like, there's a famous quote from him saying a bookshop disguises a, a utopia disguised as a bookshop and that really stayed with me for a long long time and uh, and still today and for me it's just trying to I, and we're not trying to 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 imitate uh, Shakespeare and Company at all they're, they're a beacon and they will always be and they have history and they, they do magical thing it's just this um, community thing that I think I took from Shakespeare and Company is the idea of creating a constellation of things around literature and around different genres and if, around different type of readers and create something a bit special, you know, to be almost, that's why we open every day with such long hours is to be a public service, to be here all the time, to be a, something that you can count on, a light, you know, we open on Christmas day, we open on the first day of the year. It's really, for me, it's really important to be a presence and to know to, for the people to know we're here and that they can uh, they can show up just for a cup of hot chocolate and to talk about a book and I think that's what George Whitman was doing in his bookshop it was to offer this space of browsing and this time and this uh, friendship and his love for literature and he was so like he was the baron of Munchausen for me everybody called him the Don Quixote of the Latin Quarter but but yeah, for me, it's just uh, something I aspire to be someone so altruist, you know, and so so in love with with uh, his place as well, with the walls of the shop. And all this, every, every morning I come in, I'm in love with the bricks, the shells, the book, the colors. And I think that's what George was uh, as well. I don't know. What did you take from there? <laughs> yeah, I mean... That was that's good. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, well, that that thing about staying up on Christmas day is funny because I'm like, oh, I mean, <laughs> do we have to? I mean, I get it. Do we have to? Open on Christmas? I just want a day off. It was just Christmas. this year he said that. No, it was just this year. I was just like, I'm exhausted. You know, 2020 was absolutely brutal. I mean, brutal. I'm ex- I'm exhausted. And um, he said that, but he dressed up. I was, did. I he was did. beautifully dressed. Yeah, yeah. He had he had candies prepared. Everything yeah, of course, was really of course. nice. You know, if you're gonna do it, do it properly. But yeah. I, you know. That's true. That's true. It was just this year. But as a tumbleweed and all, and a right. Time. Well, we did we did do that for a while, the tumbleweeding, and we still occasionally do. Obviously, not right now in COVID time. Can you tell us what's tumbleweeding? Uh, yeah, tumbleweeding. Um, you know, as they they come in and they roll out, and um, they were residents of Shakespeare and Company, um, and they still are. Probably, probably not now. Um, but the idea was, you of writers would go and stay there and help out a little bit in the bookstore. Originally, the bookstore was just run by George and Tumbleweeds. Uh, so like 20, 30 people living in this place. And uh, you'd have to write a biography when you got there. The idea was you write a biography. And now there's an archive of I don't know, 10,000 biographies or something, and um, which they sort of edited a few into their, one of their most recent books. An amazing book about the story of the bookshop of Shakespeare and Company. And George, yeah. yeah. And um, so the idea from that was... Um, Give what you can and take what you need. That is the tumbleweed creed. I believe, mm-hmm. I believe there's a line, something like that, about being a tumbleweed. That's like a very beautiful thing. People would come, you know, we need people who, who, who want to be part of the community and can give and, and, and be here and not just see it as a free roof. And then the, the greatest times when you have people live with you is when they just totally gel into the community and uh, they, they, they do what they do. And, you know, sometimes it's drawing something. We've got lots of drawings in the back and round in the kids section from people who, 
knew how to draw. We've had events, we've had concerts with people who knew someone less was a guitar once. You know, it's, it's always kind of really beautiful and surprising. And on our birthday last year, someone brought us a loaf of bread. They're a baker, you know, this sort of thing. And, and yeah, we were given a guitar. I mean, the space as well helped the fact that we could host people because there's some sort of a bedroom in the back. So we didn't uh, on purpose construct a place for people to stay, but it meant, made sense because it was our house for two years. Mm-hmm. And it made sense to for us to have for me that, that it was fluid between my private life and my work life that it was not separated that when we have a tea when we share with someone something we can have this moment in the kitchen as well and go back to the bookshop. You have really to be, I mean it's it's tiring. You have to make sure that you pick the right people. I mean the people understand. You know they understand that this is something you've built for the past five six years and that your entire life is in this place. So you when you hand the keys over to that person that they know what that means. Some people don't necessarily, and that's fine. That's but just we've always are. been so so marvelously grateful for everybody who stayed. Everybody was always so magical in you know in their identity and their personalities. We had a, a very young girl of eighteen, American traveling the world, who stayed with us for so six nice, months, who really helped. And um, so di- so many different characters, and they always like you know lift us up. Yeah. So it's really great. Now for the bookseller's quiz. How many books are in your shop? I think that's a question for Terry. 10,000. Don't know. I think that's right. What was the last book you sold in your shop? It was Pharmaco AI, Artificial Intelligence in the Time of COVID. That's from the same publishing house we did the event with. That's what's nice about this book. There's a nice little link there. And uh, it's by a person who wrote it with an AI. It's like one of the first poetic novels so it's yeah. like a poet poetry written with a, with an AI it's very cool what would you do if you couldn't sell books anymore I think I will do like Tove Janssen did and uh, move to um, an island uh, by Finland and make flower crowns and <laughs> swim in the cold water amazing I don't know how I can beat that I'd, well, I'd, I'd be a painter which is what I already am <laughs> what book are you reading at the moment it was Rome. It's a collection of poetry by this uh, really interesting writer from New York who's a creative uh, teacher as well. And, but it's Rome by Lansky, something like this. It's, it's about a, a terrible breakup. It's very good. I'm reading uh, Christian Bobin, Autoportrait au Radiateur. Fancy. What's your second favorite bookshop? <laughs> Shakespeare and Company! Shakespeare <laughs> Company. I'm not allowed to pick Shakespeare and Company. Third great favorite. Uh, what is my third favorite bookstore? Uh, I'm going to say La Batisfera. It's in ah. Valencia. So you've managed to build this incredibly giving community, but you've also been quite entrepreneurial, I would say, because you do have a lot of partnerships with literary magazines, journals, and so on. And I was wondering, how do you make this selection? Because it did contribute to the bookshop's uh, good reputation and reach. A bunch of my friends have told me about Desperate Literature, that they visited it in Madrid and they liked it. So is there a particular partnership you're proud of? And could you tell us about that? I think the general spirit behind these things is usually the way that we've done absolutely everything. It's a combination of being open to things that present themselves and then going after things. You know, one of the things I definitely learned at Shakespeare and Company is if you want to ask someone, ask anyone you know it doesn't matter who they are you ask and often they'll say yes you know and and people i think oh i'm not going to ask zadie smith to read a desperate literature that's just an idea that's just the first name that came into my head but why not why would you not do that 
with the literary prize. We started working with Rob. He was a bookseller who was with us and now is working in London as a literary publicist. And he, he was the one who suggested the prize. He's now quite, you know, he's getting to be more and more part of a kind of the London book scene. And um, he's really interested in new literature, experimental literature. And so it's just as we meet people, he's also a writer and a collage artist and a musician. He does lots of things. Your prize is actually just for our listeners, because I'm sure there are a lot of aspiring writers. Mm. Your short fiction competition is actually very cool. So apart from a money prize, you get a consultation with a literary agent and you also publish a book with 11 shortlisted stories mm-hmm. that has actually a very good rating on Goodreads. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's I cool. know on Goodreads. Uh, it's it's like four point something, um, which is oh, pretty good. Amazing. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's cool. But I also wanted to ask you because I read um, something that Philip Henscher, an English writer, was saying about these literary competitions and how very few literary competitions manage to spot those people who are, are actually going to appeal to the public's taste. And New Yorker does that very well. I read some of the submissions in your competition and I thought that those are really fresh voices and I would definitely read them. And I was wondering, how do you make the selection of uh, the shortlisted candidates? It's a good, yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I mean, uh, it's the same thing with the magazine. You find what you like and then you move towards it. I had worked on the was called the Paris Literary Prize at Shakespeare and Company. So I kind of managed a, a, a novella prize in Paris and kind of learned from that, really. And we realized that one of the things that's crucial is to give authors as much help and as many diverse ways as you can to get their career going. So resident, there's now two residencies, money, interview with an agent. We send, I, I mean, this is incredible. Last mm-hmm. night I was at, I'm also a painter and I was at this, the kind of opening of this exhibition. So a guy comes in the door Italian guy and he's like um, we're chatting and he's like oh, I'm a literary agent I was like all right and he says I actually read Lorenzo who was in your last uh, short thing really? I, I found I found his story and we had a chat and I was like I can't, what like this guy just walks in the door and 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 you know no I mean I just it just happened last night and um, and so you know we send out our stuff to all these literary agencies and people are telling us how it's moving around these literary agencies you know these the the PDA we always make a PDF of the short list. And that's to make that helps, you know, because you, you look at the story and you think, do, do I want to publish this? And do I want to stand behind it? Is it something that I am in love with? Which actually makes the decision-making process a lot easier because if you're just like, this is a good story, there's lots of good stories, you know, but is it a story that I want to put in a book? That's another question. Well, there's lots of like, oh, with, I don't yeah. know, you know, and then you, there's a lot of talk. I mean, we really, talk, we, yeah. each story is read twice, blinded, mm-hmm. and then we before we pass it on to you know by people here and then we talk about the ones that get in the long list a lot and people defend them and fight yeah. them and be like no this one's going to be in there <laughs> uh, and that's great you know and also we trust the readers really our, our reading group is so myself charlotte rob and then emily westmoreland who used to live here and now lives in australia and then we've got a bunch of readers a couple of poets and um yeah, just people we really, really trust their taste. And we're not necessarily writers themselves, which is really well, important. Like, there's some editors and there's like lots of people involved in literature in some way. And we just trust their opinion. And we trust them to argue between themselves and fight for what they believe in. Yeah. And uh, and for, for when you read, uh, it's, it's I mean, the judges are the final word. So, But um, I was reading this morning an interview with, you know, Paul Mendes, who wrote Rainbow Milk. There was someone asking him, "Why did you decide to become a writer?" And he was—he said, "I was brought up really religious, and I was reading the Bible, and I realized the words would not let me go from this book." 
And I realized that's when a story grabs me, it's really what I feel like. It's like I can't help but finish it and stay with it and be haunted by it. And it's not a matter of finding, for me, it's not a matter, I'm not a writer. It's not a matter of maybe finding a fresh voice, experimental stuff, like the perfect technique of a new way of writing. It's really more something that has to be excavated and said, and that was probably pre-existing before that nobody said before. And uh, that's how I'm reading, but I'm not a writer. I think you should be, Charlotte. You have a very poetic way of expressing yourself. You should definitely give it a go. Um, but I want to ask you something about uh, on the topic of writing and books that grab you and don't let you go. I saw on your website that you can I could subscribe to the Desperate Literature Guides to Dystopias. And I really love a good dystopia if I can find one. But I'm really curious to know why, first of all, from all the possible topics, you decided to go for dystopias as opposed to, you know, all the other genres, all the other types of books you could have gone for. And I'm also curious to know if this subscription list has been going better or worse during the pandemic. It's funny because we've, we've sold a bunch of those recently. It, it died down for a bit and now it's like, come back. All these people want the dystopian books. Uh, we were thinking, you know, we literally just recently did an event online with um, Kim Stanley Robinson. He's an amazing sci-fi writer. And it was on Utopias. And he insisted, along with Mika Perks, the other sort of headliner, that it be on Utopia. We needed a hopeful time. You know? So maybe I think it needs to be dystopias and utopias. I think that's where this is going to go, actually, because I, I think we've probably had enough of dystopia as the world transforms more and more into one. <laughs> it maybe needs some utopias. But yeah, it was just because I was reading, I read a lot of sci-fi and I started to read more the history of sci-fi, specifically Latin American sci-fi, um, which I knew nothing about. And so I was um, really interested in it. And kind of as I went back reading, I was like, wow, there's a lot of dystopian around and kind of put that together. But I actually think I want to make move it eventually towards utopias. It'd be really nice. There was a reader who came a few weeks ago and he was browsing through the sci-fi section. And he said to me... Um, you know, I found a real comfort reading sci-fi because I think it's the last place where politics can be talked about without being affected by everything that happens at the moment. And it was like, boom. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I was thinking that uh, a lot of writers get inspiration from real life, uh, human connection rather than internet one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to at least sprinkle your story with some real details. And given everything that happened in 2020 and now, what kind of writing trends do you expect um, in the years to come? I was, uh, yeah, I was. There, there's a book that has been published called "And We Came Outside and We Saw and Saw the Stars Again: Writers from Around the World on the COVID-19." I saw a lot of um, short movies as well made about the COVID and new ways of approaching because people were living isolated, so they were filming themselves, they were writing, and they were having more str- a stronger routine. And I think, weirdly, by this isolation, maybe we're going to be even more creative and more community-based and more appreciative and more grateful. Uh, I mean, that's something that's going to bloom. I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad you're very hopeful. That's hopeful, yeah. <laughs> I was actually very, very tangentially involved in this. I say involved. In this project called Journals of a Pandemic, which was like a UK, London-based pandemic journals website for just people to post their pandemic stories journaling and there's a friend of mine who put it together and it might even get archived in this trust i won't say where it is just in case i put my foot in it (laughs) um but that's quite intriguing that this sort of project of writing the diary of this period the mental health crises and Mm. the financial crises that we're like living through and 
you know, isolation. Uh, yeah, I think it's quite an intriguing thing. Actually, we had a very good, in the 2020 prize, we had a very good um, pandemic story. We read a few of them, but there was one very good. It was... Was it a pessimistic one or a more optimistic one? Mm, it was actually, funnily enough, more about the, the, the retelling of the pandemic. It kind of broached the history of someone being a bit older, um, finally kind of retelling this moment. And I don't think it was... Uh, I don't think it was either, really. I mean, I think there's been a big divide, like you said, Charlotte. People, people have been quite hopeful, right? I read something the other day. It came up as an advert, and it said, uh, oh, yeah, um, I think one of the great takeaways from, I mean, this is how out of it they are. This is one of the great takeaways of the pandemic is that we don't have to work as many hours anymore. And I was like, I mean, what world do you live in? <laughs> That's funny. I think about what you just said, saying that the desperate world adapts to every situation. You know the, this quote from Joaquin Font? He's an architect, but he spends the whole book in a mental institute. And um, it, was, it was a quote, by the way, it was given by Craig Walter and Corey Eastwood, who have their own bookshop, but who are our partners here. Yeah. And they were really in love with Bolaño and the Savage Detectives. And, and that's really a move from Craig. He's very, he's very like this. So I mm -hmm. think a mental, in a mental institute as a bookshop is interesting. <laughs> And in these strange, strange times, what are people reading? So I know you mentioned in the beginning that it's uh, more difficult for you as booksellers. You don't have as many people walking into the shop asking you for books, for recommendations. But um, are there some trends that you've noticed? What are people looking for? Is it more comfort books, more information? What types of books are more popular in uh, pandemic time? It's very eclectic, right? Huh? Yeah, yeah. All the genres. The rock stars are Sally Rooney, of course. Maggie Nelson still, yeah. But yeah, they go for the classic with me. Strong stuff like Moby Dick, uh, Tolstoy. You know, people are ready now to tackle some serious Big books, like yeah. Ulysses. Big, big books. They want to, like, they often say to me, no, I want a very thick book and I want something big really books, that's yeah. going to, Solzhenitsyn, you know, some, yeah, masterpieces. It's true. One of our friends actually started reading uh, Russian classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big books. I think people have gone through. And a lot of poetry and a lot of um, non-fiction, which is nice. Small pamphlets about, we have one called What is Existentialism? That people, you know, and they want to really have to nurse different stuff now and they know they have time to dedicate to reading and to this space of time. I saw you have adapted very well to with what happened with events as well you were doing yoga and meditation uh, on zoom from the bookshop that's true we did do some we didn't do yoga but we did a meditate well as part of an event we did we yeah, did a meditations we did at the beginning at the beginning before the reading we did this meditation that was actually with a publishing house ignota books they're, they're amazing actually they just got uh, long listed or short listed for the republic of consciousness prize which is an amazing prize in the uk and for the book on no language um that we did an event with. Yeah, we did a meditation at the beginning with a friend of ours from the States. Yeah, that's a very beautiful thing. Yeah, we also did a podcast yeah. for a bit, um, which is sometimes Cabin fun. Fever, I really like this. Cabin Fever, yeah, which is sometimes, we've kind of stopped Cabin Fever now, yeah. um, which was sometimes uh, funny and sometimes serious, yeah. It's just the space adapts to any type of, of shape we want to give it. That's what is so interesting. That's a Ruby Cube, you know. Uh, Terry, he's reading to chess, so we have chess <laughs> evening. I really like this evening; it's great. It's just <laughs> very silent, actually. No, it's not whiskey. silent. It's very silent. It's not silent. We, There's a lot of whiskey, we, we but get... they're all so so nerdy about their game that I just walk very quietly because I don't want to. I mean, I tried once and I felt so. Yeah, this and what and the, you know those those big moments we have as well. The once every two years, like the festival or the poetry reading. 
and festival, yeah, it was pretty the cool. prize when we had the, the event for the prize all those events are just because it comes with so much work that uh, when it finally happens and you see the it's like a wedding <laughs> it's like a wedding That's exactly <laughs> it is exactly like. the feeling the, the, we, we the, never the fe- the I, mean, I never got married uh, you no i've never got married uh, <laughs> I think we don't, we don't remember that. I remember. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. The festival was so much work. I mean, but so I've never beautiful. Done... Sixty poets in the. Oh, it was I mean, pre-COVID. Kind of. That was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So the shop packed. Amazing writers from all over the place and people outside in the street. Speakers in the street. We had at the end of a big gallery where there was a concert. It was just non-stop from seven in the morning to midnight. But just so much happiness. I had a few. Just... I had a few cries during that. Like, so. yeah, <laughs> oh with flowers in his hand. <laughs> Yeah, had a, had a big break down even flowers at the end like thank you Terry it was, it was yeah it was very moving yeah it makes sense when you do those things it makes so much sense to, to be here and to work that much yeah of course you really made us want to attend things in person again now as soon as this pandemic lets us do it and can you tell us a little bit more about all the fun quirky things you have in your shop we heard there's a chessboard, there's a boozy shelf um, and also a special phone what are all these things Someone broke the phone, you know. Oh no! I thought it was because of COVID that we didn't have it. No, no. Someone broke. No, someone broke oh. the phone. I need to fix it. So it's- the phone I saw at a Beat Generation exhibition in Paris, and it's so cool. At the time, it was based on they would use voice recorders, you know, tape recorders, and you'd call a number, and it would take you to a voice box. It was and- the John Giorno exhibition yeah, in '69 yeah. in New York about uh, and- that yellow poem. Yeah, and then it's like, I need one of these. <laughs> um, so we got our friend at Structo Magazine, a great magazine, Ewan, and he made it. He made this, you know, because I was like, oh, God, you've got to get a little Raspberry Pi comp- thing and build it. And and he just did it like a genius and uh, sent it to us and someone broke it. So now I need to figure out how to fix it. Um, well, it was really fun to have those. I mean, it was really uh, something that people played with and you could see if they were under 25 or not because there was it's a it's a dial, it's a dial. and uh, and we had uh Kirouac, we had um sylvia plath, sylvia plath some ulysses ursula Le Guin. Yeah. Uh, so each number was a text read by an author we had a boozy bookshelf as well that has gone it was a nice idea you know, in the first few years of being here, if you buy one of the boozy books, you get a shot of whiskey. <laughs> it's a very good idea. I recommend it for anyone opening a bookstore. However, after a few years of like drinking three shots of whiskey at 5 p.m., you're like, <laughs> because people are like, come on, you're like, yeah, let's yeah, do it. You're like, all right, I need to stop doing this now. You know, often people want you to be involved and, yeah. you know, uh, but yeah, maybe, maybe that'll come back someday. Who knows? Um, it was had, fun. It was for The Great right Gatsby for... It was fun to make the selection for this shelf as also well. Boozy, yeah. and, um, and to have this moment where people like just, not only because it's alcohol, but they're just surprised by the idea. And they, <laughs> they're like, okay, I'll stay 10 more minutes and then you get to know them. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very nice moment. I remember I had, uh, I, there were girls on, um, how do you call it when you prepare a wedding? Uh, not stag Hindu. And there were six of them. And one <laughs> of them didn't realize she was she was buying a booty book, so I, a boozy book. So I I told a booty book. So I told her, so, yeah, 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 you you allowed a shot of whiskey, and they all got a shot of whiskey. They were super excited. They were reading some parts of the books to each other. It was it was fantastic. But this like idea of having cool kind of things because I do quite a bit of the building. I really like just having weird stuff and giving myself really odd projects. 
you know <laughs> i wanted to build one of those like a like a pinball machine where the ball that goes around in the kids section <laughs> he wanted he wanted once to make a honoran juice fountain in the, in the kids <laughs> just like lots of section. stupid things like you know like oh yeah but that'd be a great idea why don't we do that and it's just like, really nice to tune it to whatever you want this bookshop to look like and it's just endless you can add tweaks in every direction and and I love it. And I learned and I learned how to how to build now. So that's cool. Yeah, we've been building together. Like a little machine that stamps the book for you. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like something quite cool. You know, just just lots of stupid things. Yeah. It sounds like the wonderland of bookshops. So we have to agree that as soon as we can, we meet in your shop for a, a shot of whiskey or something. Yeah, Absolutely. Please do, please do. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. We hope you enjoyed our chat today. We'd like to give a special shout out to our first ever listener to have sent us a voice message. David from Oslo, who asked us. A bookshop that you might enjoy. I don't know if you're just doing Anglophone books, but one of my favorite bookshops in Oslo is called Kaplan's Forschlag. It's a really fantastic bookstore. And if you are ever in Oslo, I, I can't recommend it uh, highly enough. Really looking forward to future episodes of the podcast. And hopefully you might cover uh, some Norwegian bookshops at some point in the future. Thanks, David. We're on it. If you'd like your favorite bookshop to be featured on our podcast, do what David did and leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash godbooks. We'll do our best to make your wish come true. In the meantime, sit back, relax and enjoy a good book.